Welcome to the first episode of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance podcast. The Canadian COVID Care Alliance, or the CCCA, is an alliance of independent Canadian doctors, scientists, and healthcare practitioners committed to providing top quality, balanced, and evidence-based information to the Canadian public about COVID-19. This podcast will discuss some of the important work the Canadian COVID Care Alliance has been doing. We'll start by reviewing a speech given by Dr. Stephen Pellick on December 10th, 2022. Dr. Pellick is one of the founders of the CCCA, and his talk is packed with interesting and vital information we think listeners will want to hear. In particular, the following review of Dr. Pellick's talk will provide a window onto what is now known about the risk of myocarditis associated with the COVID-19 genetic vaccines. At the same time, it is meant to give listeners a sense of what the CCCA is up to and how their scientific and medical advisory committee works. Dr. Pellick is one of the founders of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. He's a professor in the Division of Neurology in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia and serves as a member of the UBC Senate. He is also a founder and the current president of Conexus Bioinformatics, a Vancouver-based biotech company. Dr. Pellick spoke at the Trudeau Must Go nationwide demonstration in Vancouver, December 10, 2022. He started his talk by letting people know that his company, Conexus, has been testing people over the last two and a half years to determine what degree of natural or vaccine-induced immunity people have acquired in relation to COVID-19. In his words, to make a long story short, I can tell you that you have all been exposed to the virus. You all have antibodies. It would be very rare for an individual, three years into a pandemic, not to have natural immunity. This means that when you decide to get vaccinated, you are getting vaccinated over and above an immunity you already have. So the question then becomes whether the vaccine is safe and giving you better immunity, or whether it is compromising your immunity. And I think that what we are seeing at this point is that it is reducing your natural immunity. Dr. Pellick further clarified that he's not the only professional expressing these views and that the scientific conclusions he was sharing represent the thoroughly researched conclusions of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. To ensure the quality and reliability of all that they publish, the CCCA has established a Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee comprising 36 members. This committee consists of professors, medical doctors, and scientists. Many of the committee's 36 members have between 30 and 40 years of directly relevant research and medical experience. Dr. Pellick and Dr. Chris Shaw, also at UBC, are committed co-directors, and they, together with the other 34 members, meet every week, volunteering their time to work through the emerging scientific literature and all that is being published on the relevant health authority websites. So... Dr. Pellick made clear that he would be sharing conclusions arrived at by the community of experts working together on the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee. There are now, he said, two kinds of victims. There are the victims who did not get vaccinated and who were subjected to prejudice and discriminated against for their decision. And there are also the victims who decided to get vaccinated and who, subsequent to vaccination, have died or been injured 
or who are now anxious about possible future side effects. The number of victims is now growing, not so much in the unvaccinated population as much as in those who are vaccinated. Referring to the data gathered through his company, Conexus, Dr. Pellick observed that three-quarters of the people tested had antibodies related to COVID-19, suggesting they had pre-existing immunity from other coronaviruses in the environment or had been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus at one time or another between December of 2019 and March of 2020. What this clearly suggests is that the virus spread through our communities unhindered for those four months, or was not the only coronavirus people had come into contact with in their lifetime. At this point in the talk, someone in the crowd yelled out, the virus does not exist. And Dr. Pellick took this as an opportunity to make clear his and the CCCA's position regarding the reality of COVID-19. He offered to speak with the audience member after his talk, and then clarified that, based on his own direct observations, the virus does indeed exist and has been spreading, and that his own company couldn't do any of the testing it was doing if they didn't have an identifiable genetic structure for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Setting aside the question of how well or poorly they work, without an identifiable genetic structure, we wouldn't be able to develop PCR tests, rapid antigen tests, antibody tests, and mRNA COVID-19 genetic vaccines. And furthermore, if we didn't have an identifiable basis for its genetic structure, we wouldn't be able to track how SARS-CoV-2 has apparently mutated over time. To propose that the virus doesn't exist at all is to ignore an enormous body of research and scientific literature. In other words, with COVID-19, we have been faced with a real threat. The good news is that, thankfully, this threat is diminishing. The variants of SARS-CoV-2 described in peer-reviewed research today show a significantly less dangerous pathogen than those first identified. And the recognition of this evolution is generally accepted in the scientific literature at this point. Essentially, the virus associated with COVID-19 has evolved into something like a common cold. It appears to be more infectious than it was earlier, but it is also much less lethal. That, according to Dr. Pellick, is the good news. The bad news is that we are continuing to vaccinate people against the virus And this vaccination campaign continues to be associated with an increase in injuries. In terms of safety, the general public has not been told that the COVID-19 vaccines were subject to only about 10% of a typical vaccine testing regimen. There are many reasons why this is concerning. When receiving these mRNA COVID-19 genetic vaccines, people's bodies are being injected with RNA that is genetically engineered to be stable. We know that within two days, the lipid nanoparticles designed to carry and distribute this RNA have traveled through the entire body. Testing has shown that within two days, 76% of the nanoparticles are gone from the injection site. We've been able to determine that the lipid nanoparticles go to the liver, pancreas, ovaries, brain, breast milk, and testes. We know that after vaccination, sperm counts drop in men, and then stay down for about six months. We also know that after vaccination, about 40% of women have menstrual difficulties. 
In terms of reproductive rates, we are currently down by about 10%. So we know without question that the vaccine produces profound systemic effects in the body. And we have to hope that the safety signals we are seeing represent issues that we will be able to recover from. In terms of death rates, some may be surprised to learn that in the first year of COVID-19, there was no significant increase in the overall death rate or all-cause mortality in either the U.S. or Canada. People who would normally die from cancers, cardiovascular disease, and other causes died from COVID. Now, yes, many of these people suffering from additional underlying comorbidities probably died with COVID. But even if there are problems with statistics attributing death exclusively to COVID-19, when there were multiple contributing comorbidities, these problems do not affect the overall death rate. It's so surprising that it's worth repeating. In the first year of COVID-19, there was no significant increase in the overall death rate in either the U.S. or Canada. Since the mRNA COVID-19 genetic vaccines have appeared and been administered to significant portions of the population, however, all-cause mortality has climbed by 10% to 15% in over 29 well-documented countries across the world. When you look at the increase in all-cause mortality, there is very little correlation with COVID itself, and there is very clear correlation with the mRNA vaccines. There are other contributing factors, of course, like public reliance on telemedicine, postponement of surgeries, and the fact that people have been receiving far fewer physical exams. But as it stands now, one conclusion is inescapable. The vaccines are not safe. When it comes to the accepted narrative surrounding COVID-19, things have changed. Dr. Pellick and his colleagues in the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee might have made the case a year and a half ago that the benefits of getting the vaccine could potentially outweigh the risks. Today, however, no one in the CCCA's Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee would recommend the COVID-19 vaccines because there are just far too many safety signals. When we take all of the reports of all the vaccine injuries, hospitalizations, and deaths in the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in the U.S., the U.K.'s Yellow Card System, and the World Health Organization's Vigi Access System, what we see is that there are more vaccine injuries from the three U.S.-approved COVID-19 vaccines than from all of the other vaccines administered over the last 30 years combined there have been more than 32,000 reported deaths following the COVID-19 vaccine reported in the United States VAERS system alone. As context, some of you may have heard of the drug Vioxx. Vioxx was a novel anti-inflammatory drug that was released into the market and widely used before it was discovered to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. In the case of Vioxx, 6,000 reported deaths was what it took to have the drug removed from the market. Unfortunately, while there are precedents like the Vioxx case, which have established thresholds for removing toxic drugs from the market, there is no such precedent for when to remove a harmful vaccine from the market. From the beginning, what has been missing from the public health discussion around COVID vaccines 
is a thorough, ongoing risk-benefit analysis. The general public has been abundantly informed of the potential benefits of vaccination, but very little information has been made widely available on the potential harms. Three years into the pandemic, it is more essential than ever to communicate what we know about the risks associated with these vaccines. To begin with, the more you are vaccinated, the higher your risk of vaccine injury. This correlation is particularly significant for young people whose risk of developing severe COVID-19 is quite low. To illustrate, in the last three years within the province of British Columbia, there have been nine COVID deaths in the population under 29 years of age. This number includes young people who had serious confounding factors, like leukemia or other cancers, when they were reported as having died from COVID. The very low risk that COVID-19 poses for those under 30 is in stark contrast to the significant risk posed by the COVID vaccines. In mid-November of 2022, the BC Centre for Disease Control published a paper in which they examined the risk of myocarditis posed by the vaccines. At the beginning and again at the end of this paper, they made clear that they interpreted the data as showing the vaccines were safe. When we interpret this data for ourselves, however, the BC CDC conclusion seems misleading at best. According to the BC CDC's own data, young people have a 1 in 2,000 chance of getting myocarditis from the second or third shot of a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Contrary to the BC CDC's conclusion, a 1 in 2,000 chance of getting myocarditis is already seriously concerning, but the reality is even worse. We know that some three out of four cases of myocarditis are asymptomatic, meaning they show no symptoms. Since the BC CDC data referred only to symptomatic cases, we can reasonably infer that the risk of myocarditis for young men aged 12 to 29 is somewhere in the vicinity of 1 in 500. Many people have come to realize that they have myocarditis because they're very active people, like athletes, and they notice differences in their performance when they are active. By the same token, there are bound to be many more people who are less active and therefore less likely to be aware that they've developed myocarditis. Now, people might be inclined to say that myocarditis can't be serious if it is asymptomatic. The problem is, when we are looking at the risk of myocarditis, and this includes subclinical and asymptomatic myocarditis, we're still looking at the risk of permanent damage. Myocarditis is the death of the cardiomyocyte, or muscle cells of the heart, that are replaced by scar tissue instead of new, fresh muscle cells. This can result in a range of cardiovascular injuries, oftentimes resulting in the heart shutting down altogether. The general public ought to be aware that these are not minor considerations. These are life-threatening conditions. And at this stage, we don't know how long young people with vaccine-induced myocarditis will live. The fact is, we don't have the necessary experience with vaccine-induced myocarditis, uh, certainly not at this scale. We know that with virus-induced myocarditis, typically about 20% of people die within six years. With these vaccines, we are in uncharted waters.
We don't know what percentage of people will die or how many years of life will be lost as a result of vaccine-induced myocarditis. There are a lot of things we don't know when it comes to the long-term risks of these vaccines. Given the serious safety signals we are seeing, however, it is reasonable to believe that we are going to be seeing a great number of people suffering from cardiovascular disease as a result of these vaccines. Myocarditis and other cardiovascular conditions are not the only issues of concern associated with the COVID vaccines. Subsequent to COVID vaccinations, we've seen an alarming rise in cancer rates. At this point, we don't know exactly why we're seeing this surge in cancers. It may be because subsequent to vaccination, the immune system is partly compromised. Whatever the mechanism may be, the rise in cancer rates, like the rise in cardiovascular disease, is an alarming development. And it is precisely because of safety signals like these that Dr. Pellick and his colleagues feel compelled to speak out. Now, given the very serious issues we've been seeing associated with the vaccines, one might expect an immediate and significant shift in public health policy. But the BC government doesn't seem to be acting in accordance with their own data. Their own studies show that 70% of people have natural immunity to SARS-CoV-2. 70% is already a significant majority, but we know that the numbers are even higher. The BC government studies are looking at antibodies to the nucleocapsid protein. Yet in studies run by Dr. Pellick's company, Conexus, he's found that many people with natural immunity to COVID-19 don't produce antibodies to the nucleocapsid protein. This discrepancy explains why Dr. Pellick's estimates of natural immunity rates are higher than the current government figures. More importantly, however, what this means is that there is now pervasive natural immunity to COVID-19. Yet, in spite of this good news, and in spite of the serious safety signals associated with the COVID vaccines, we are not seeing a shift away from vaccination on the part of the BC Ministry of Health. Instead, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is the provincial health officer at the BC Ministry of Health, is consolidating all health professional colleges. This consolidation means fewer regulatory colleges, greater ministerial control, and the continued insistence upon strongly encouraging vaccination for everyone's patients. There appears to be a bizarre disconnect at the level of government policymaking when it comes to the COVID vaccines. One factor that may be contributing to this disconnect is the sheer enormity of the provincial and federal financial investment. Already over a billion dollars worth of vaccines that nobody wanted expired at the end of 2022. With what appears to have been very little regard for the precautionary principle, the Canadian government went ahead and ordered two shots for every person before the vaccines had even been approved for use in Canada. A similar disregard for the possibility of public harm appears to be at work in Bonnie Henry's current order that any student entering into nursing, medicine, dentistry, or other health professions needs to be vaccinated against COVID-19. If we're seeing increases in all-cause mortality and increases in cardiovascular diseases and increases in cancers subsequent to COVID vaccination, we need to seriously consider whether we wish to continue endangering the health of our healthcare professionals. If we are already anticipating long-term ramifications for the health of our general population, 
what will that mean for our health professions? The BC medical system already has a shortage of some 4,500 nurses who left the profession because they didn't want to get vaccinated. While some of these professionals can be replaced by colleagues from other countries, this is much easier said than done and will not solve the underlying problems. Scores of doctors and dentists have opted for early retirement. Many health professionals have already left the profession. These were the people who were on the front line throughout the first wave of COVID-19. These were the first healthcare professionals to be infected, and as a result, they were the best protected because they had acquired natural immunity. And these, contrary to all common sense, are the people that we have gotten rid of. The whole thing has been a travesty. As Dr. Pellick has said, this is why I speak out, and this is why my colleagues speak out. And this is why he hopes that as many people as possible go to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance website, canadiancovidcarealliance.org, and have a look at the tremendous wealth of scientific information it contains. The CCCA sticks to the facts and does its best to provide vital source materials that can help anyone and everyone to develop a critical understanding of both COVID-19 and the COVID-19 response. In Dr. Pellick's words, we have to have more people that are outspoken. So I commend all of you for listening and for being here. You're obviously very awake, interested, and concerned. But we also have to help people who have been vaccinated. And we need to try to find strategies by which we can all heal as a society. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this review of Dr. Pellick's talk as much as I've enjoyed reviewing it. In the next podcast, which I hope will be just as fascinating, we will be considering an interview with Deanna McLeod, another member of the CCCA's Science and Medical Advisory Committee. In this interview, clinical researcher Deanna McLeod does a deep dive into the data manipulation required for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to publish an analysis which concluded that COVID-19 vaccines are not only safe, but also preventative against heart disease. Deanna McLeod's ability to interpret, clarify, and expose the faulty reasoning behind the CDC's analysis will not disappoint. In the meantime, if you would like to learn more about the CCCA's Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee, please consult the About Us page on our website, CanadianCovidCareAlliance.org. Before we go, one final point of business. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a writer, editor, and research contributor at the CCCA, as well as a volunteer member of the CCCA External Communications Committee. This show was written by Gudrun Welder and edited by Matthew Evans-Cockle and produced by Gudrun and me. Our inaugural episode is dedicated to Gudrun, whose vision and passion has ensured that this show made it to your ears. We're looking for volunteers interested in helping with the production of this podcast. If you have a passion for podcasting, have the applicable skills, and are inspired to help us out, please email us through the CCCA website's Contact Us page. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our very first CCCA podcast. <laughs>